Good afternoon, Anchor Nation. Aaron Rollins here, coming to you live on my podcast, Southeast Third. I want to thank you all for listening. Let's jump right into what's been going on. So, you may be able to tell I'm not my usual self. I've been sick. Last Friday, when I was at work, I uh, tested positive for COVID. I've been having some symptoms, and I was under the impression that it was my allergies. Uh, I get a uh, sinus thing throughout this time every year. <laughs> Gets me congested, I cough. I was feeling especially tired and weak, and I had a little bit of diarrhea. So I was like, well, these symptoms line up with what everyone's saying COVID is. So let me get checked out. I got checked out. Lo and behold, lo and behold, my test came back positive. So I've been holding down the place I live. Um, not doing a whole lot, drinking water, sleeping a lot, um, trying to rest up as much as I can. I got to go back to work on the 20th, um, provided that my symptoms don't get any worse. And I, I don't think they will. I'm doing okay. I'm taking medication. So, you know, with that being said, the process was relatively painless. Um, you know, I was still working when I checked in, so I... Just went to the desk and talked to whoever I needed to talk to, which was the AOD. Don't ask me what that means. I don't. That's never really been explained to me. Uh, I talked to whoever it was I needed to talk to and checked in. And I was still working while that was happening. And uh, eventually, one of my nurses swabbed me. And the um, I've been swabbed before. That was a different test than what we use. So the swab that we use, when uh, that nurse stuck it in my nose. The first nostril, she kind of dug it in. <laughs> she kind of dug it into my nair, which is what you call the one nostril, right? She dug it into my nair, and it kind of hurt. <laughs> so I, I started to, like, pull back, and it was really instinctual. I, I wasn't really thinking about it. I just started to pull back. She said, hey, dude, I didn't even get it. <laughs> and she asked me, do you have a deviated septum? I said, no, you just you poked into my nose. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> She got the other one, and it, it just burns whatever fluid is inside of that little um, tip, that uh, that probe or whatever you call it that they stick in your nose. It just makes your nose burn. And um, anyway, so I, I by the time I got tested, it was like ten, almost ten thirty, in between the, that time frame. So I, I was like, I told the my charge nurse, who's responsible for directing what everybody does throughout the day. That I was just going to take my dinner break. So I took my dinner break and I sat and waited for the results. And my nurse came up and said, hey, I'm not even kidding. You're positive. So we're going to write you this uh, 10-day absence thing and come back to work on the 20th. So um, <clears throat> We follow the CDC guidelines where I work. So the CDC guidelines say 10 days. If you're symptom-free, you can go back to work. If you're not symptom-free, then they reevaluate you. So we'll go from there. Um, I'm vaccinated for all of those that might be wondering if I am or not. I got the Moderna shot. Uh, mine was a little, how do you say, uh, it, it was a little unorthodox because you're supposed to get it within a certain time frame. And I'm pretty sure I was either on the last day of that time frame. What do I mean by that? You're supposed to get your second shot within a certain amount of days. And I'm not sure if I got my second shot within that window. So it could be that the vaccine wasn't as effective as it should be because I was outside my window. I don't know. 
Um, I can't remember exactly how many days you have between your first and second shot, but uh, I well, it just we we had some issues up here in February when I was getting my shot because uh, the the freeze happened and everything like stopped for two weeks, so that set me back. And uh, you know, working the way that I work, I it's it, it was just. All right, so when, before I came up here, I got my first shot down in Rockport when I was working as a medical assistant. If you've been following my channel, you know that about me. I lived there. I worked there for a while, and uh, that's where I got my first shot. And my follow-up shot was supposed to be scheduled, but it just never happened. Um, they didn't have appointments ready for me. I was working too much. Uh, whatever, you know, just X, Y, and Z just wouldn't wouldn't let me go and get my my follow-up shot so i decided to wait till i came up here and then the freeze happened and that sent me another two weeks back and <clears throat> so i encourage any of my listeners there if you do get vaccinated which i highly recommend that you do uh if you do get vaccinated get your get your second shot within that time frame it's like 60 days maybe less i'm, I'm not sure just get it as soon as you can save yourself the grief um, I will say that from what I've heard from some of my friends, my symptoms aren't as severe. Uh, I'm not like struggling to breathe. I don't have tightness in my chest. That's, I mean, it's a little, it's a little hard for me to breathe, but it's not, you know, so severe that I'm having to go to the hospital. And thankfully where I live, the hospital's right across the street. I could literally walk over there if I needed to. So that's nice. Um, biggest issue I have is that I, I can't really go grocery shopping. You know, thankfully there's delivery and such, but I really want to go into the store and see what, you know, what I'm what I'm picking out. It's it's unusual for me to to order it off of the internet. It's just not something I'm accustomed to. So I got to adjust to that and uh, I feel like I'm wasting away here cuz I should be in the gym training and I'm not. <laughs> just sitting on this couch. Um I did lose my taste and smell. Uh, that happened a few days ago. Uh, it's kind of strange, you know. Unless it's like a very strong flavor, I don't really taste it. I don't don't taste my cereal when I eat it. I don't taste any of the protein drinks that I have, which that's it's actually kind of nice because those are freaking gross. Um, I don't really taste my meals unless they're like super salty. Some of them are, so I'll taste that, but that's really it. And the uh, the weakness is pretty strong. Um, I picked up a box of pizza that i had ordered i ordered delivery contactless delivery and uh when i got the pizza i, I ate some of it i didn't really have much of an appetite so i saved some for later and it was in a box it was a pizza box i pulled it out of the oven and i was holding it in my hand and my phone in my other hand i was talking to someone and it just slipped out of my hand onto the floor <laughs> it spilled everywhere oh all i could say was no because <laughs> it's so mad all that pizza got wasted uh, I still ate some of it. <laughs> I keep my floor pretty clean. I still ate some of it. Anyway, um, that being said, all that's been discussed now. You're aware of what's going on with me. I'm not at work right now. I'm sick. Uh, job's still the same job. I did get into college. I got into Mary, Mary Harden Baylor. Um, I'm going to try to get my PA degree which is uh, technically a master's. You go to college, you finish your four-year, and then you do two years of like medical school after that or whatever it's good. It's a PA pilot program. I anyway, I, I don't know the, the, all the specifics. I just know that it's available, and I'm, that's what I'm pursuing. Um, my employer offers different programs that I can take advantage of. I just got to 
work there for a year and um once I get all that done, then I'll be in PA school after that. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But that's pending. That's that's not now. <laughs> um, uh, some other big news is obviously if you are on social media at all or watch TV, uh, watch any sort of news outlet, you know about the fall of Afghanistan's government. Um, I was on my brother's uh, Skype call last night, and that was... Uh, that that came up as a topic of discussion. It's it's kind of hard to talk about because he he asked me how I was feeling, and I know he doesn't really care. He was just asking so I could say some stuff on the show. But if you were to ask me how I feel, um, like I mentioned on the show, I had said there's an umbrella of feelings, and uh, yeah, there's there's some anger. Um, there's mostly disappointment that it did finally happen because we we all knew everybody that's been there knows it was going to happen someday ever since they talked about drawing down the troops in afghanistan uh back in 2010 or 11 or whenever they first met initiated the drawdown we knew they weren't ready um you know we killed a lot of taliban fighters but it wasn't enough because they they keep flooding in from other countries and uh, you know, they would run and hide for, you know, three or four months at a time, wait out the cold season or wait out Ramadan, and then they'd strike again. And you just, <coughs> you just know from what you see over 20 years that it's, uh, it's something that you've just got to wipe out. You can't engage it in these little skirmishes here and there and these prolonged firefights that, you know, a small team is ambushed here and there and it's, you know, it's easier said than done, of course. Yeah, it's easier said than done, for, sh- for sure. Um, because those, those guys are, are well hidden. They, they infiltrated the population really well. We experienced a lot of that when I was over there. People infiltrating the military, the police. They would, uh, <coughs> they would show up for training, and then they'd go through their training, get their uniforms and their money, and then they'd go home for like a week. Or they would say they were going home for a week and they'd never come back. So, you know, you, they, they were either killed by Al-Qaeda or Taliban or they joined them. Um, and that was a prevailing issue we encountered. Uh, I even came across um, some high-value individuals that had, like, backgrounds when we were working over there because we would scan them with our uh, biometric tool system. It's a little camera that scans your iris and your fingerprint. And uh, a lot of those guys were known affiliates of Al-Qaeda or Taliban insurgents. And we were having to work with them. You know, one, one guy in particular stands out because uh, by, by looking at him, you wouldn't have guessed he was Afghan. Uh, and by his accent, you know, he had a slight accent and he spoke you know, uh, not just uh, Pashto, which was a popular language. He didn't just speak Pashto, he spoke Pashto, English, and I think Urdu, I'm not entirely sure. It wasn't Urdu, it was Farsi. You know, very, very intelligent guy, and uh, he had a background for working with Al-Qaeda and Taliban uh, leadership. Not just uh, like a a wanted individual, like a sniper or um, somebody that makes bombs. Like, he was connected to cell leaders, and we still gave him a pass. Because uh, he knew somebody that led him into the 
military program that he was in, and uh, we couldn't touch him. It was above, it was out of our hands. It was what the uh, Afghan military was working with. They cut him a deal. He cut them a deal, and, you know, we, we'd look at his record and be like, Jesus Christ, we, we really need to take this guy in. We need to get him off the street. But uh, it wasn't our call. And decisions like that, you know, that's just one encounter. That's just my encounter and a handful of others. But he's he's one people out of thousands, or one person out of thousands. How many more people out there are like that that aren't um, that are deceiving us, that are deceiving the government? Well, you don't have to worry about it anymore. The government's collapsed. The president has fled. Uh, you know, Biden made some pretty interesting points. He said, "We're not committed to past objectives." We're not committed to what we, we had stated before because those objectives have been completed. We destroyed, you know, millions of dollars worth of uh, uh, enemy equipment and, and killed, their, killed their operators. You know, that, that cost them a lot of money. It cost them a lot of resources. We completed that objective. We uh, killed bin Laden, completed that objective. We disrupted their training uh, Cells in certain regions, um, we, we uprooted them from certain locations, and they were basically just doing guerrilla war tactics for the last 10 plus years. And, uh, you know, the goal was to get them out of those neighborhoods and cities, uh, those villages and all that, and, and we did that. Uh, we didn't completely wipe them out, and that was, that was an, uh, an ambitious objective, but, you know, we did, we did the most that we could with what we had and the restrictions that we operate under, you know, and rules of engagement, Geneva Convention, and all that. Um, <coughs> so, you know, given what, what you have, you, 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 we did a pretty, pretty good job. Um, but the, all, all that to say, you know, you, you, you want to believe that, that we did fine work, but the point is we still lost. Just like we lost against communism in Vietnam. Now, Vietnam's turned around, and, you know, I, I even know people that come from that country. And, um, you know, their way of life is much different than it was 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Uh, yeah, 60. Something like that. Um, God, this headache's killing me. So their, their way of life is much different. But Afghanistan, I, I, it's been the same way for thousands of years. And uh, Taliban isn't going to change anything. It's just going to make it more oppressive. You know, if you, if you have any questions about how brutal Taliban really is, I want you to Google search somebody. Bibi Aisha. It's B-I-B-I Aisha. A-I-S-H-A. And look at the image that first pops up when you see her. I guarantee you will be an image of her mutilated face. They cut her nose off. They beat her, mutilated her, and left her to die. And by the grace of freaking God, she lived. And eventually she made it over here. But she's dealing with uh, very prolonged after effects of what happened to her at the hands of... Um, I'm not sure if it was Taliban or Al-Qaeda. It was one of those. Uh, at the hands of those men, uh, she was promised as a wife to somebody, and he was going to join up with one of those extremist cells, and she wasn't with that. She was objecting to it, and he said, you're my wife. You're going to do what I say. You're going to go along with this, and she's like, no, I'm not, and she wanted to marry someone else. When he found out, he beat the daylights out of her. It was awful. 
And um, she's been raped, beaten, mutilated. Uh, she's gotten plastic surgery. The last I heard, she lives in Maryland, so she's still alive. Um, I don't know what kind of quality of life she has, but she's still out there. So that's just uh, that's just one indication out of the hundreds of thousands of uh, demonstrations those extreme organizations have made to show their brutality. You know, the raping kids thing is still going on. They're still trafficking humans. They're still trafficking drugs. They're still trafficking weapons. Um, you know, they're killing people that don't dress the way they dress, that don't uh, worship the way they worship. Uh, you know, if there are any Christians over there, uh, their time is coming. They're t if they don't die, they're going to have to live in secret for the rest of their lives. Like that dude in Japan, when Japan found out he was a, a Christian missionary, a Catholic missionary, or one of those things, and he had to live in secret until he died. Um, I'm sure y'all know what I'm talking about. They made a movie out of it. But uh, that's that's the future of Christianity in Afghanistan, specifically. I'm sure it's the same in some other countries. But in Afghanistan, things are about to start getting really dark for those people. The government's collapsing. Taliban is going to start taking over. And as they start to have more and more success, more and more people are going to start flocking to them. I mean, heck, there was one guy that was removed from uh, government office, and he was a tyrant. He was terrible. But he kept the bad guys out of there. He kept uh, insurgents and extremists from coming in and blowing things up and sniping people and stealing from civilians because they do that. They steal their kids. They steal their goats. They steal their crops, um, and they'll, you know, like, they'll pressure you into giving, giving them whatever they want, or they'll kill you, or they'll take your kids from you. Um, and, uh, you know, this guy was, he was a government official, and he got removed from office. He, he wasn't the most moral man. He was actually kind of horrible uh, from what I read, but he, he had the rule of law in his hand, and he... He maintained that. He ruled with an iron fist, as the, as the saying goes. And, um, <coughs> throat's dry. <clears throat> he ruled with an iron fist, and, uh, he got results. He maintained stability in his region. And when he got removed, his dedicated followers left and joined Taliban because they lost faith in their government. Can you imagine that? Can you, can you imagine uh, people from, you know, the Department of Defense, say the people in the Joint Chiefs of Staff Council, the president says this and, and some stuff happens, and they defect. Can you imagine that happening in our country? I can't. I can't imagine that happening. I can't imagine a top-level uh, general or lieutenant colonel or equivalent rank um, – you know, saying, I don't agree with this. I've lost faith in my leadership. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. You know, we would persecute them under the law. Over there, they don't have that. If you want to say F it and roll, you can't. <laughs> because it's so unstable. Because it's, it's so uh, fluid. Everything changes from day to day. Like, what, what's it going to look like in five years over there? You know, um... With all that equipment we left behind and all the, those uh, trucks and, and weapons that we left behind, what, what are they going to look like? Are they going to have a um, semi-professional military? 
after after this because uh, you have to excuse me. I'm in my kitchen filling up my water. Um, so in the Karingal Valley, there's a sort of a documentary film on this um, called Doc Restrepo or something like that. It's about the uh, post that's named after Doc Restrepo in the Karingal Valley. And it was just a terrible location. You know, you had elevated terrain on either side. And it was a hot spot for ambushes and attacks against Al-Qaeda and Taliban and all that other stuff. And uh, anyway, they had to abandon that base eventually. When they abandoned it, they left behind millions of dollars in equipment and freaking um, weapons. Millions of dollars. They blew up what they could, but they didn't blow up everything. So there are guys out there running around right now with some of our stuff. <coughs> uh, do they know how to use it? Probably not. Um, but that's, that's always been our advantage over them is that when it comes to things like night operations and air superiority, we had definitely have the upper hand. Uh, you know, they, they don't have night vision goggles like we do. They don't really need them because, you know, they know the terrain so well, but... Um, they can't hit targets at night like we can. They have to attack during the day. Uh, they can't call in air support like we can. You know, they can't call in gunships or A-10 Warthogs or uh, C-10s or 130s, whatever, calling in 105 shells. They can't do all that. They don't have the means, but we do. And, you know, we've just spent trillions of dollars. I think it's over $2 trillion dollars. On this war over 20 years, we've just poured money into it. And I think if you were to bottom line what killed this war, what stopped all of our progress, what hindered us the most from winning was money. We've spent so much money. We've poorly spent money. We've poorly appropriated or allocated money for different programs. Uh, that fighter jet that we've spent billions of dollars on, well, it's not billions, that hundreds of millions of dollars on. Over the last 15 years, that doesn't even function properly. All the money we spent on that, all the money we've spent on uh, gear that doesn't work, the 3M earplugs, that's a big hot topic right now. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I'd, I'd say definitely, you know, it was, it was a prolonged war and, and we spent a lot of time there, yes. I, but I don't think that's the problem. I think it's the money. I think people are sick of paying for it. They're sick of taxes going up. They're sick of products uh, being pushed out for people to use. They're sick of uh, faulty research. Like, I, I mean, whatever happened with the XM8 rifle, the experimental rifle that was supposed to survive austere conditions and dirt. You know, rifles that we use now can't do that. They they uh, they get dirty. They jam, and you can't fire, you can't use them, or they they break down completely. You know. They were supposed to come out with this rifle that was supposed to be able to throw it into a pile of sand and come out and you dust it off and you can still shoot it. That that never, I never saw anything from that. Instead, they came out with this new uh, individual assault rifle that's supposed to be like the M4. M4. And uh, the difference is, is it fires uh, at a higher rate of fire and it holds more in the magazine. So come on, man. <laughs> that's the best you can freaking do. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it, something about those those spec ops guys like Delta and Green Berets and SEALs and Raiders and, um, you know, they, they all have access. Or don't forget the Air Force. They got what's it's TACP. You, you 
you've got all these guys that have special access to different uh, technology in their armory that the regular guys don't get because it's too expensive. But if you cut costs in other areas and port it into your weapons that some guys have access to and it's proven to work for them and you make that uh, you know, broadly applied – your results will will improve. Um, I think you know it's you got to really look at it as a as a spending issue. If it comes down, it's just simple numbers. We definitely had the upper hand. We could have won this war. We lost it because we didn't know how to spend our money correctly. Um, we could have spent it better on trading. We could have spent it better on budgeting. We could have spent it better uh, on on so many things. Uh, you know, people are literally sitting over there in combat zones, holding down uh, a computer station, and uh, they spend their whole five to nine month deployment just checking into work, doing shit on a computer, and that's it. You know, I, I get that you need certain IT support, but if you're spending an hour out of your workday playing fucking computer games. You're, that money is being wasted, and that money can be better spent. And that isn't just something that I saw once or twice. This is something that's been going on for over a decade. And, I mean, you think about that. You think about 20-something paychecks times 1,000 people over 10-plus years. How many millions of dollars is that? It's a lot, I guarantee you, especially if your pay is like three to four grand a month. No, no, no. Three to four grand, yeah, there's something like that. Anyway, um, but you got to multiply that by like a thousand people. That's re- it's incredible. It's incredible how much money is pissed away. <coughs> um, mm. People make jokes about government spending all the time. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. And for the longest time, I thought it was exaggerated, but it's it's not. And I, that's something I've been shouting over social media for the longest time is government spending is a travesty. It's just a travesty. You know, if, if – here's, here's my take on how we stop crap like this. Um, so a part of this plan needs to be a broader approach. What do I mean by that? You've got to engage more fronts on the battlefield. Well, why would you expand your battlefront? That's going to stretch your resources thinner. You're going to spend more money, and you just talked about saving money. Well, you've got to stop the problems where they rise up from. You've got to nip it in the bud. And part of that happens with the drug trade. The drug trade is global. So you've got to go into Central America and cut that shit out. You've got to decimate drug trade in a way that is unprecedented that has not been seen historically you've got to decimate the drug trade you have got to decimate it and in afghanistan where 90 percent of uh, farmers farm opium you've got to come up with some sort of alternative that will sustain that economy um and i that's been a big problem for a very long time is that there's really not one that they can think of um, but some something has to be done. Something has to be done about the drug trade. To say that you know terrorism and drugs are are not entwined is is a lie. They are definitely entwined because terrorism funds a lot of their activities through uh, illegal means, uh, 
trafficking weapons, trafficking people, trafficking drugs. And if you take one of those legs, they have one less leg to stand on. So you've got to decimate that. You've got to go to Central America. You've got to go to Africa. You've got to go to places that you know these drugs are being collected, stored, and shipped. And you've got to just wreck that stuff. You've got to burn it to the ground. And that includes Afghanistan. That includes Iraq. That includes Iran, Pakistan, Syria, all of that. You, you can't simply look at it as a linear approach. It has to be dynamic. It has to, excuse me, it has to include multi, multiple facets. Um, now, as far as getting those guys out of the country, I had a thought on that too. You start from the north of the country where it borders India uh, up in the mountains. And you drain personnel and materials from all these other bases that we have. You activate everybody uh, that you can at one time and send them all out there. You consolidate your military force in the most fantastic way possible. I'm talking like 70% of, of our military gets activated and sent there. And you, you reassign people that are um, not historically in combat MOSs to be support MOSs. So you got your combat MOSs, your infantry, your advanced infantry, your mortars, your artillery, your tanks. You take every single freaking tank that you have that you can put a person in, and you stretch that from west to east of that country starting up in the north, and you just push in a straight line all the way down like you're combing hair. You're combing through the entire country. And everybody's like, well, the terrain's not forgiving enough. You, you can't navigate that kind of stuff. You, what you can't get, get over, you blow up. You just blow the shit out of it. We've got, the, we've got the munitions to do that crap. So you just decimate it. You decimate everything that's in your way. And you just push from the north down to the south. And as your combat MOSs are pushing down, your support MOSs are behind them to offer relief and support so that your guys aren't getting exhausted from the combat fatigue. And from the tempo of operations, so you know people can rotate out, and you're setting up these hasty uh, patrol bases and, and command centers that you can tear down as you move. So you're 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 doing pretty much, you know, instead of setting up permanent bases like we did in Germany and Japan and in England and Italy, you're setting up temporary stuff. And we set up a lot of permanent stuff, like we set up permanent stuff in Kuwait. Don't set up permanent stuff. You set up temporary stuff that you're staying in for like a month at a time. And you, you stay in your area long enough so that you can be confident that you've rooted out every single enemy combatant in that area. And you push on. And you push. And you push. And you push from the north of the country down to the south. And then you go back up again. And you just, you just do that a few times. And you take the majority of your combat MOSs, stick them in that country with plenty of support personnel uh, coming in behind them. To, to set up, like I said, relief and support, keep the ammo flowing, uh, give people opportunity to sleep and rest and stay out of the combat zone because you combat for too long would just drive me insane. Um, I mean, PTSD victims are a prime indicator of that. So you just, you just do that over and over and over because what we have seen in Vietnam and, and in Afghanistan is that these small cell engagements are not winning. They're not. So you just got to push and push and push and clean every freaking thing out. And how, how do you get the locals to coincide with that? How do you mitigate collateral damage? Well, you tell everybody it's like we're partnering with your government 
and your government is saying that you are going to stay in your homes. Anybody caught out of their home is going to be assumed an enemy combatant, and we're going to kill you. If we see you outside of your house, we'll give you everything you need. We'll give you water. We'll give you food. For the next month, you are staying at home, and you ain't going nowhere. You ain't going anywhere until we're done here. And once we're done here, you can go back to life as normal. That's fine. But for the next month, you ain't doing shit. You ain't doing a damn thing. Because if we see you outside your house, you're getting shot. And that sort of extreme tactic will ensure that, you know, whatever locals you're encountering are enemies. Because if you, if you demonstrate to them, like, hey, your government is with us on this. We're going to get rid of every bad guy in this country. You just have to help us. You help us by staying at home and not leaving. And I had a similar thought with, um, with Mexico, you know, uh, putting military elements in Mexico, you know, we, that's never – I'm not even sure if that's come up in conversation in the White House. But if you wanted to decimate the drug trade there, you take whatever military elements you can. Maybe it's uh, paramilitary. Maybe it's private contractor mercenaries. Maybe you want to do that. Well, what you do is you have military escorts that are, that are Mexican following along with you. And you're telling people at night, hey, look, um, we're about to do some dangerous stuff out here. You can't leave your house. If you are found outside of your house at night, you're going to get shot. You cannot go outside for no reason. You cannot go outside. You have an emergency, you call the cops, you call an ambulance, somebody will come and get you. But you can't step outside of your door or a sniper is going to take your head off. And it's just that simple. Anybody that is found outside of their home is dead. And you might think hearing that it's like well you're talking like nazi style um and that's that's kind of the the tactics i i am pushing here is when they occupied poland and france they had complete control complete control everything was cataloged everything was watched everything was recorded and this that that iron grip you you've just got to have the tightest grip possible because anything that's that wiggles its way out or or filters out is going to Get away, it's going to regroup, and it's going to reassert itself. And that's exactly what happened with ISIS. Is all these splinter organizations broke off, made their own, because we allowed it to happen. We allowed them room to breathe. You can't do that with these organizations, because you're, you're not just fighting a, a professional military. You're fighting an ideology. These people, this is their way of life. You know, they've been fighting since they were children. Their grandparents have been fighting since they were children. So you're, you're fighting people that have been in war for hundreds of years, and their, their culture is a warrior culture. It goes back even thousands of years to when they were fighting the Persians. So they, they don't they, – they, something they're, – they're a, they're a warlike culture is what I'm trying to say. So you, um, you can't expect to just like kill a few thousand of them and, and break their will. Their will is not going to break like that. You have to eradicate every single last one of them that follows that ideology or else it's going to come back. And we just saw it happen in Afghanistan. We just saw it happen. Taliban has assumed control of the country. And how are we going to get them out now? Well, somebody did mention that they're all in one place. So maybe, I don't know, we can do something there. But I, I don't think Biden doesn't want to do war anymore. And, and, you know, I don't blame him. He's trying to give people a break. We've been paying and paying and paying. I mean, how do you, how do you weigh the balance of, you know, winning this war that we need to win or giving the people the break that they need? 
because you just you can't bear this burden like that for so long. It's too expensive. It's wearing people out. You know. Anyway, um, I had good friends die over there. Uh, people that I I knew personally, and then a whole bunch of other people that I didn't know have died. It's about two thousand three hundred people that died in Afghanistan. Um, that's a lot. It's more than it should be, but it wasn't for nothing. Uh, there are a lot of people's lives that we touched. I know I touched a few people's lives while I was there. A couple of them, you know, they even came to America after I met them in Afghanistan. They came to America and they became American citizens. And um, they're, they're, they're living their dream. They're living their best life. And that's, that's a nice feeling, knowing that some people got out of that miserable existence and you got to be a part of that journey even in some small way um, but it still sucks that the overall goal was not accomplished just like in Vietnam just like in Vietnam you know they say lessons learned that's a crock of shit part of my language <clears throat> anyway I'm going to get going thanks for listening um if you know a veteran that is struggling, please reach out to them and let them know that you're there to listen and you care about them. You know, nothing's going to make us feel much better that this is the way that it's played out. But I can tell you from my perspective, I'm not surprised in the slightest. Not surprised. I, I wrote a paper in college about why we needed to extend the war in Afghanistan and stop the troop drawdown. And, and nobody gave a fuck. <laughs> nobody was listening. Nobody cared. Um... But it was, I mean, it's true. It's true. All the points that I made about the strategic location, the flowing of drugs and human trafficking and the long-term effects of having stability in that region, um, you know, that's all, all relevant, all accurate stuff that I researched. And, uh, you know, this, this playing out the way that it did goes to show that I was right. If we had done the things that we needed to do and won the war the way that we needed to win it, Afghanistan wouldn't be crumbling, the president wouldn't be having to flee, and people weren't, wouldn't be dying left and right. Because um, thanks and under Taliban rule, it's only going to get worse. They're going to purge any ethnic diversity, um, any religious diversity. They're going to purge that. Women are going to, like, they're not going to have rights. Uh, it's going to be a war-torn country for the next 10 years, I guarantee you. Uh, that's my two cents on the whole matter in Afghanistan. Um, please reach out to your veterans that have been there and your active duty guys and reserve guys and gals that have been there. Um, take care of yourself. Wash your hands. Don't catch COVID. Please get vaccinated. Um, and get off your phone for a little while after this. And uh, spend some time with your kids. <clears throat> That's all I got. This is Aaron Rollins. Until next time, signing out.